Giving the Word of God to anyone is a wonderful gift because the Word of God makes us wise unto salvation, right? The Word of God reveals God to us. The Word of God feeds us. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When he was tempted in the desert, he fought back with the sword of the Spirit, fought back against Satan with Scripture. The Word incarnate fought with the Word. Spoken. The Word of God pierces between soul and spirit, right? It says in Hebrews. It knows the intentions of the heart. It's the scalpel that does heart surgery on each of us. The Word of God is powerful and living. Last week, our guest speaker, Dr. Beely, talked about the Good Shepherd and that the Good Shepherd feeds the flock with the Word of God. And we're not talking about appetizers or cotton candy here. A full course meal is what you expect when you come on Sunday, and you expect to be fed from the Word of God. But he also said you need to learn how to eventually feed yourself and to feed others. So we have that opportunity this morning as we get to the last section of Mark's Gospel. It's an opportunity for us to trust our Bible even further, even though it's a confusing last section of the Bible. Say, Bible confusing? How could that be? Well, hang in there. Take good notes today. But the title of the sermon is We Can Trust the Bible. Whatever you get from the sermon today, that's point number one, the first point, the last point, and many points in between. You can trust your Bible. Your good English translation of the Bible. We like to preach from the NASB. Uh, A lot of preachers are going to the ESV now, the English Standard Version. Both very good translations of the Bible. You can trust your English translation of the Bible that when you open it and read it and the preacher preaches from it, that you have an accurate rendering of the Word of God. An accurate rendering of the Word of God. Of God. In fact, our 9 a.m. Sunday school curriculum is starting with a whole section on bibliology, the study of the Bible, how we got the Bible, why we can trust it, how we use the Bible. Because before you get into the Bible, you need to know that this is a book that you can trust, that it's divine, that it's not like any other book on this earth. The first six lessons from our new curriculum. Next slide, please. First six lessons. God's Word is our foundation. Second lesson, how to then study the Bible. Third lesson, God's Word guides us. Fourth lesson, God preserves His Word. Fifth lesson, God's Word is complete. The sixth lesson, don't change God's Word. And we would affirm all six of these points. Amen? Amen. You've been well taught in this church by Pastor Andy to love your Bible, to trust your Bible, to study your Bible, to apply the Bible. We have Bible study groups Sunday morning. We have small group Bible studies during the week. We have a women's Bible study Friday morning. We have a men's ministry that is really starting to focus more now on studying the Bible. Do you think maybe the Bible is important Yes, it is. But then let me read to you verses 9 through 20 from from Mark's Gospel. I don't have a slide for this, so you can just listen or follow along in your Bible. Remember, chapter 16, the last chapter in Mark's Gospel, ends with the women seeing the empty tomb and the angel telling them that Jesus has risen just as he said he would. And it says, They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 
Now, in my Bible, verse 9 begins with a bracket. Maybe in your Bible, too. With a footnote, perhaps. And the footnote might say that a few late manuscripts and versions contain this paragraph, usually after verse 8. A few have it at the end of chapter 16. Other footnotes say older manuscripts do not contain this section. And we just got through saying that God's Word is complete and that God preserves His Word and not to change God's Word. And we say, well, then what are we supposed to do with that footnote? At my seminary and Andy's and Nathan's, they all tell you the same thing. There's, there's two sections of the Bible that when you preach it, you might get fired. <laughs> so don't start with them. And one of them happens to be the ending of Mark's gospel. Because I'll just lay it out for you now. There's a pretty good chance that verses 9 through 20 were not in the original version of Mark's gospel. And later they got added in. So now you're either saying, well, can I trust my Bible? Or is this guy, this preacher saying I can clip part of my Bible out? And Andy started the Gospel of Mark. He really should have to finish it. I, was, I almost was going to have him preach this. But I've been here six years, almost seven. You know my commitment to the Word of God. You know the seminary I attended is probably, attended is probably the foremost biblical inerrancy seminary in, in the world right now. I mean, that is where they live and die. It's their hill to die on at Master's Seminary. You know where John MacArthur stands on the inerrancy of Scripture. And in fact, next year at the Shepherds Conference in March, they're having an inerrancy summit with theologians and scholars from all over the world meeting at the Shepherds Conference to reaffirm biblical inerrancy and sign a statement saying we affirm the Bible is inerrant. Because if the Bible is not inerrant, then why bother preaching expositionally? Why go line by line? Why not just use it as a general guide like some other denominations, some other churches, some other pastors do? Now, we affirm that we have an inerrant Bible. So let me read this. It says, Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with them while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen." And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover." So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. There's also a shorter ending that we have found in some ancient manuscripts that your Bible might include. And the shorter ending sounds like this. And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. So we've got these multiple endings found in ancient manuscripts. And we're trying to figure out which one is the original. You'll notice as I'm reading through there, it the writing doesn't really sound so much like Mark. It sounds like a, uh, almost the way a young person writes before they learn to polish their English. Lots of, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then. That's not at all the way Mark was writing his gospel. His stories were 
were, uh, they were wonderful and rich and lots of details and really kind of pulled you in to the story. This is kind of a catalog of uh, facts. And in fact, most of the ones that we read, we know from other books of the Bible. We, he's not saying anything new here that we don't get from the other Gospels or from the book of Acts except for the picking up deadly uh, serpents and drinking poison. And so we're like, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, we'll get back to that later. So you might be a little uncomfortable in your seat right now. It's okay, we will clear it all up by the end of the sermon. I do want to go through these six points, though, and you'll see how they relate to our passage at hand. Let's start with that first point, that God's Word is our foundation. Indeed it is. The Bible is its own authority. You need to remember that. The Bible is its own authority. It claims to be the Word of God. It makes no excuses. It unashamedly says again and again in the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord. No other book on the planet makes those claims. When we get to the New Testament, we read passages such as 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Jesus praying in the high priestly prayer in John 17.17 said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1.20 writes, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Scripture is our foundation because it is from God. It is His revelation to us. If man said, well, I read the Bible and I've determined that it is the Word of God, then who's the authority? Man, right? Because he's saying, well, I'm not sure it's the Word of God, but I, I've read it and I've uh, you know, tested it and I've determined it's the Word of God. No, the Word of God says it's the Word of God. It's its own authority. And when you read it, you realize this book is like nothing else I've ever read. It knows my heart. It knows who God is. It reveals God. It tells us how everything got here, where it's going, how it's going to end up. It tells us how man got here, what man's purpose is, what man's problem is, what man's the solution to man's problem. These are not things that man can come up with on his own and it be authoritative. You ask those questions to a hundred men outside the Bible, you will get a hundred different answers. This book is self-authenticating. 2 Peter 3.15, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. This verse shows us that the apostles knew they were writing Scripture. They knew they were writing Scripture. They were appointed by God as God's spokesman to write the New Testament. I love that Peter says some of the things Paul writes are hard to understand. Amen. Amen. Peter thought so, then I don't feel so bad. And yet he says, also the rest of the Scriptures. So he put Paul's writings on par with the Holy Scriptures. So the Bible is its own authority. It's the foundation for everything that we do. Secondly, then, how do you study the Bible? There's a proper way to study the Bible, a proper way to do theology, a proper order. We really want you to get used to this list. 
In fact, we have another form of this list that's kind of in a pyramid with God's Word at the bottom and then practical theology or experience at the top of the pyramid. You've got to start with the foundation. You start with the Bible, or what we would call the canonical scriptures. Canon is a Greek word meaning measurement or measuring rod. So the canon is the recognized uh, uh, books of the Bible contained in the Holy Scriptures. Only those books belong in the Holy Scriptures, so we call those the canonical scriptures. There's other writings that do not belong to the canon. So you've got to start with the Bible. Secondly, you need to then read and study it correctly. You can't just have the Bible. You have to actually read it and interpret it according to a set of rules known as hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. It was not named after someone named Herman. It's, it's based on a, a uh, Greek word. So hermeneutics is the science of studying the Bible. We adhere to what's called a grammatical, historical, literal hermeneutic, that God used normal grammar in a historical context. So you need to understand what did the letter, what did the Word of God mean to the original audience. Therefore, it must mean the same thing to us. The truths are transcendent. You don't say, well, we're living in a different time and a different culture, so the Bible means something different for us. You use the literal approach, except for where the Bible is obviously being metaphorical, where it's using similes, where it's using figurative language. But you don't read your Bible allegorically. You don't try to take a regular message and make it say what you want it to say through some kind of allegorizing. Otherwise, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say, and then it's not the foundational, authoritative Word of God anymore. Thirdly, then you do biblical theology, and you're saying, well, isn't all theology biblical? Well, all theology should be biblical, but theology is just the study of God or the study of God's universe, reality, truth. Theology proper is the study of God, and then theology generically is just how you think of the world. And we're supposed to think of the world through God's eyes. He is the source of reality. He reveals reality to us. We want to do a biblical theology. You've got to know your Bible from Genesis to Revelation and really understand the whole scope of redemptive history. What you don't want to do is just kind of drop into the middle of your Bible and pick out verses that you happen to like and ignore the rest of the Bible. Because you'll be tempted to do what? Misinterpret those verses, right? Twist them around. We call that proof texting. I've got a great idea. Now I need to find a verse in the Bible to back up my idea. That's not what the Bible is for. After you have a good grasp of biblical theology, you can move to systematic theology. Systematic theology summarizes all the biblical teaching on particular topics. So like uh, last week, they asked me in Awana to the high schoolers to teach on angels and demons. That's a systematic theology topic. What does the Bible have to say about that particular topic? And you pull all the verses you can find about that. But you don't want to just start there because in order to make sense of those verses you've pulled out on that topic, you need to understand the whole scope of the Bible to guard you from saying things about that topic that aren't biblically true. However, a good systematic theology is a helpful tool for the Christian. Andy, Pastor Andy's taught a systematic theology class here at the church on and off for the last 23 years. We've used Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, that big, thick, blue book. You're familiar with it. Uh, one of Pastor Andy's mentors just finished a systematic theology named John Frame. John Frame helped Pastor Andy uh, do his doctorate. 
very, very intelligent man, great writer. It's even thicker than Grudem's, right? So it's got to be better, right? Systematic theology. And then finally, you can do practical theology. The final step in doing theology, whereby you take all that knowledge of the Bible and you use it as your guide to interpret your experiences and to live out your life according with the truth. The problem is we tend to get the order backwards. This, uh, let me give you an example. Eve in the garden, okay? Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. She was doing theology. And first she did it the right way, and then she did it the wrong way, and all of humanity plunged into sin. And we've been copying her ever since. I throw Adam in there, too. It's not just Eve. They're a unit. They're a couple. He was standing there as she was doing theology. But the serpent comes and says to the woman, is it true that you can't eat from all of the trees in the garden? So he's twisting God's word. And she does theology correctly. She starts with God's word. No, God said that we may eat from any tree in the garden except the one in the middle. So she's, she's doing proper theology. She used proper exegesis. I understand that when God says you can eat from any tree, that means you can eat from any tree except the one in the middle. Pretty plain language, right, God uses? Right? Anyone could understand that. Of course, at this time, there really isn't a Bible, so we wouldn't really say she was doing biblical theology. But in a sense, she was measuring that against what she knows about God. He's good. He loves us. He's trustworthy. He's never let us down. He's never lied to us. I have no reason to not believe. So she's doing theology. She's doing theology proper. She's thinking about the attributes of God. You won't die. Satan said, no, God said we we will die. And I have no reason to disbelieve him. She's doing a little bit of systematic theology because she adds the words and don't even touch it. Okay, now we don't know if God ever said don't touch the tree middle of the garden, but she's now doing systematic theology and practical theology. She's saying, look, if I'm going to die if I eat from this thing, then I probably shouldn't go anywhere near it or touch it. Isn't that good practical theology? But she went through the proper order. Now, we might like take our kids and tell them, hey, don't touch that, and we don't tell them why. We don't take them through the steps. We just start with the practical Don't touch it. Why? Because Daddy said so. You're not really giving them the steps of of theology. So then the serpent says to her, what? You won't really die. In fact, on the day that you eat from that tree, God knows that your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So instead of going back to step one, she says, and the Bible reveals to us, that she saw that the tree was, it looked good, it's good for eating, and it's good for making one wise. What part of the list is that? That's step five, right? It's practical. Well, look at it. It's, it's beautiful. I bet it tastes great. And wouldn't be being like God and being wise, isn't that a good thing? Sure, except for that it violates everything God revealed to you. See, we don't start with our practical theology and work backwards. We start with the Scriptures and wanting to glorify God by obeying His Word. And glorifying God by obeying His Word and trusting His Word always leads to joy. Always. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our sin nature tells us, no, 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 no. This thing that God's telling you will be good for you. No, no, no. The better thing's over here. Yeah, but that's the thing God's told me isn't going to be good for me. Yeah, but look at it. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's pleasing to the eye. And the pride of life, it's, it's, it's going to make you popular. It's going to make you important. It's going to make you um, acceptable to your peers. And it never ends up delivering what it promises. Maybe a little bit of instant gratification, but long-term destruction, separation from God, guilt, uh, and death. 
we'll get people coming into the church all the time. They'll call and they say, will you do our wedding? And we don't know these people. They don't go to our church. But we always say, sure, come on in. We'd love to talk to you. Right? That's a, that's a good entry point to find out. Do they know the gospel? Do they know Jesus? I know they're all focused on a wedding and this is the biggest church in town and it's a beautiful venue. That's all they're thinking about. But as pastors, we're thinking about their souls. So we say, come on in. We sit down with them. Do you, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? And uh, based on that answer, we, we will take the conversation in that direction. But often, at some point in the conversation, it comes down to, are you living together? And nine times out of ten, they say, yes, we are. Why? Because it makes sense to save money instead of paying for two different apartments. And so where are they starting their theology? From step five, the practical theology. And we, we help them to start from step one and go through step five. And lots of times they'll agree to, to separate. And that's a wonderful thing. And other times they say, no, thank you, and they go find another church in town or a justice of the peace. You'll be hearing more about these steps later. We really want to help you with this because all of us in our fallenness tend to want to do our theology backwards. Start with, what is it that I want that I think it'll make me happy? And then we build a theological case backwards. And we'll even go all the way down to step one and try to find a justification for what we want to do in the Bible. Okay, point number three, God's Word guides us if we do theology uh, correctly. God's Word guides us only if we do theology correctly. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119.11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. In Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I always add Hebrews 4.12 in there to remind us that we need the Bible to show us to show us that we don't always want God's Word to be a lamp to our feet. We say the verse, we say we believe the verse, we say we trust the Bible, but we need the Bible to diagnose our heart that even in our fallenness, even as believers, we still have residual sin. There is part of us that wants our own lamp, that wants to go our own way. And so even when the Bible reveals that in us, we need to trust it. Even when the Bible reveals to us that the heart is desperately sick, right, in Jeremiah, it does what? It deceives us. Who can understand it? So if our own heart is deceitful and we say, yeah, but I think, I think that I'm sanctified enough that I won't be deceived anymore. You're not listening to the Bible. If the Bible tells you your heart is deceptive, you need to trust it. It'd be ironic to say, yes, I believe God's Word says my heart's deceptive, but mine's not. You've just, you've just um, demonstrated your own um, ability to be deceived by your own heart. So we get all that, but we get to points four through six, and we're like, wow, what do we do if God preserves his word? God's word is complete, and don't change God's word. And we're saying that the long ending of Mark doesn't belong in our Bible. In fact, when I was a new believer and really getting into God's word, my wife bought me a MacArthur Study Bible. Here it is. It's got my name embossed. It's fallen apart. It's the New King James Version you know, your first Bible that you really study, you know where everything is because you kind of see it visually. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, it's, it's, it's on the left-hand side of the page about two-thirds of the way down. I know where that verse is. Um, and that's how you kind of learn your Bible at first. I don't know the, the book, the chapter, or the verse, but I think I can flip to it and find it. And so I love this Bible, even though I preach out of the NAS. And if you read Macar the MacArthur footnote on Mark, here's what it says. Anyone else out there use a MacArthur study Bible? 
couple of folks, I, I highly recommend one for your study. So here's what the study note says. And I understand people say, well, the study notes aren't inspired. Amen, they're not. But they're helpful for learning. It says, the external evidence strongly suggests these verses were not originally part of Mark's gospel. While the majority of Greek manuscripts contain these verses, the earliest and most reliable do not. A shorter ending also existed, but it it is not included in the text. Further, some that include the passage note that it was missing from older Greek manuscripts, while others have scribal marks indicating the passage was considered spurious. Spurious means it doesn't belong there. The 4th century church fathers Eusebius and Jerome noted that almost all Greek manuscripts available to them lacked verses 9 through 20. And the internal evidence from this passage also weighs heavily against Mark's authorship. You know, there's some other places in our English Bibles where translators have had to make some difficult choices uh, too. 1 John 5, 7, and 8. It's called the Johannine comma. The King James included this line, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. But most ancient manuscripts don't include that verse. We say, well, how did it get into the King James then? And why should we take it out? Isn't there warnings in the Bible not to add or subtract to God's Word? Well, from best we can tell, there was an argument going on in the 1500s over the Trinity. And the Unitarians were saying there is no verse in the Bible that clearly teaches the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one that they're co-equal. And so Erasmus was writing a new Latin translation of the Bible. He felt that the Latin Vulgate that Jerome had written was um, uh, ugly Latin. And he said, well, Paul deserves better Latin than this. And uh, he collected as many manuscripts as he could get, and he wrote a new Latin version in 1517, By the time he got to the third edition, there were people pressuring him to put the Johannine comma in there. And he said, I do not have this verse in any of the oldest manuscripts. And you understand, the the older the manuscript, the more reliable, because manuscripts are copied by scribes. And so the earlier the manuscript, or the closer to us in history, the more likely it was a scribal error. So you want the oldest manuscripts you can find. And the oldest ones didn't have this verse in it. And he finally told the people, uh, so the story goes, look, I'll include it in the third edition if you can find me a manus- an ancient manuscript with this verse on it. And lo and behold, somebody found one like in the, the garbage area of a monastery. Just like that just a couple days after he said, look, if somebody can find me just one ancient manuscript, suddenly appears this ancient manuscript. Now, we don't need to defend God that way. You know, people get, get, uh, boy, doesn't, Jesus never says anywhere in the Bible, I am God. Well, yes, he does. He says, I am many, many times. The Father and I are one. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. We've got plenty there. We don't need a verse that Jesus says, Hey, everybody, just so you know, I am God. And people think we need that, and they're tempted to squeeze it in the Bible somewhere. All that does, I think, is serve to make people doubt the Bible, right? It serves when you start adding verses in there like this one. Well, yeah, that would be a very strong statement on the Trinity. But the Bible doesn't need that statement to back up the Trinity. It's all over the Bible. Many, many other places talk about the Trinity, including the Great Commission, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's, a, there's another one, one of my favorites in Mark 10, the rich young ruler. You know, he sends the rich young ruler away, and he says... 
It's difficult for a rich man to get into the kingdom. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, some later manuscripts turn the word camel into cord. It's a very similar word in the Greek to camel. You can understand how a scribe copying the scriptures can make that mistake. Our minds do that all the time. Your uh, autocorrect on your phone does it all the time, right? And it drives you nuts. And yet it kind of makes sense, right? A, a, a cord through... Don't think of a needle back then as the sewing needles we have. They didn't have the capacity to be able to make a needle that small with an eye that small. Their needles were a little bigger, a whole little bigger. And you can imagine getting a cord through the eye of a needle. It would be difficult depending on the size of the cord, but... It might make sense because cord goes with needle and camel doesn't go with needle. But the older manuscripts say camel and Jesus is saying it's impossible to get into heaven by your riches. Which one would be impossible? A camel or a cord? Camel, right? So camel's the correct reading. What we just did is what's called the science of textual criticism. Back in the 50s, all the evangelical leaders who believed in inerrancy met in Chicago because Moody Bible Institute is there. And they put together this statement. It's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And uh, over 300 men signed it that day, including John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, and many other men you'd be familiar with who are still alive today. Part of the statement says this, Since God has nowhere promised an inerrant transmission of Scripture, okay, we have an inerrant Bible in the original autograph. So when Mark wrote, that first copy is inerrant. But all copies since, God has not promised some kind of inerrant copy. It is necessary to affirm that only the autographic text of the original documents was inspired and to maintain the need of textual criticism as a means of detecting any slips that may have crept into the text in the course of its transmission. The verdict of this science, however, is that the Hebrew and Greek texts appear to be amazingly well-preserved, so that we are amply justified in affirming with the Westminster Confession a singular providence of God in this manner, in declaring that the authority of Scripture is in no way jeopardized by the fact that copies we possess are not entirely error-free. Similarly, no translation is or can be perfect, and all translations are an additional step away from the autographer. In other words, the fact that we're reading in English you're not going to be able to get the Hebrew and Greek to be exactly the same in English, but we can capture the original meaning in the English. If you know foreign languages, you know that they're, they're not one-to-one translations. The vocabulary is a little different. The grammar is a little bit different. But we can know what God has said. You can trust your English version of your Bible. Yet the verdict of linguistic science is that English-speaking Christians, at least, are exceedingly well-served in these days with a host of excellent translations and have no cause for hesitating to conclude that the true Word of God is within their reach. You have the true Word of God in your good English translation of your Bible. I'm not saying all English translations are good Sometimes, in an attempt to make the Bible more understandable, some translations start adding personal commentary into the Bible. Now, if you want to read that as a commentary, just realize that's okay, but their opinion may not end up being what the Word of God is really teaching. I see that often in, like, the Message Bible. It's a, it's a wonderful commentary tool to kind of help you go, oh, okay. But I've seen it in some verses. Whoa, that's not really what that verse means at all. Um, The best English translations are done by a big committee of scholars where they sit in a room for years on end and they haggle over the verses. So you make sure no one person's opinion ends up being what you get in your hands in the final copy. 
We like the NASB and the ESV here at Country Oaks. Andy's been preaching from the NASB. That's what I preach from. Nathan likes the ESV. That is a wonderful translation. If you want us to uh, evaluate the translation you like to use, you should make an appointment with Andy or myself or with Nathan, and we'll look over your translation, and we'll tell you the pros and cons about it. How does this textual criticism work? It's very simple. You take all the manuscripts, and you pour through them, and you look for discrepancies. And the older the manuscript, the more reliable. The number of manuscripts matters, but age matters more than number. Because if an error was made, and then that manuscript was used to make a whole bunch more copies, you could end up with more manuscripts with the error than manuscripts that doesn't have the error. So in this case, uh, bigger is not better, or more is not better. Older is better. So how well has God preserved his word? It's pretty amazing, really. I mean, some people think God preserved his word by dropping a Bible out of heaven and we found it one day. And that makes people happy, but that is just not how it happened. We didn't find golden plates somewhere with God's word etched on it. My, my apologies, I'm not mocking our Mormon friends, but that is not how it works. The only thing that we have... In the Bible, that was God actually dropping his word out of the skies, the Ten Commandments, right, etched on on the tablets, the first copy. And then uh, when God wrote on the wall, uh, is it Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah. Otherwise, the rest was written by man, inspired by God. We have over 25,000 manuscripts of the Bible. Now, they're not all complete Genesis through Revelation, but 25,000 manuscripts to look at. And the earliest one we have is a portion of John dating back to 100 A.D. Isn't that amazing? We have a portion of the Gospel of John, and John lived into the 90s. So for people who say, well, yeah, we can't trust the Bible because they didn't start writing it until well after, you know, Jesus was had left the earth or... Um, Okay, the apostles wrote the Bible, but then the original copies were gone, and we don't have any uh, copies of the originals for two or three hundred years later. That is not true at all. We've got copies going all the way back to the second century. The, um, using textual criticism and comparing all these manuscripts, we can be really over 99.9% sure that we have an accurate translation, an accurate record of the original autographs. In fact, there exists no discrepancy between manuscripts that alters any Christian doctrine. So even the discrepancies that we have are very, very minor. And this is going to happen when a scribe copies Scripture. He's going to make a mistake here or there. The Hebrew scribes were much more meticulous than the Greek Scribes, Not to say the Greek ones weren't, but the Hebrew scribes had a whole system for knowing exactly where each word should be on the scroll and how many words should be in a line and how many letters should be in a line. And they had a whole accounting system. And they wouldn't put uh, the name of God in the scroll until the very end, until they knew that that part was Correct, because they didn't want to put God's name in anything that was incorrect. And if one was incorrect, they didn't erase, and they didn't want to destroy the scroll, but they marked it in such a way that they knew, this. don't use this scroll. We have copies of some of those that have survived over time. But they, the Greek scribes and the Hebrew scribes knew they had the Word of God and were very careful in copying and you say, well, is, is, is this good? Is 25,000 enough? Well, let me tell you, the next closest ancient document is Homer's Iliad. We have 650 surviving manuscripts of Homer's Iliad, and these aren't complete manuscripts, just portions, with the oldest going back to 1,000 years after Homer wrote. Now, when you 
when you read Homer's Iliad in high school or college, you don't remember your teachers saying, now we're not really sure that this is what Homer wrote. No, we, you just read it and, and you were like, they said, be, you know, textual criticism, we're pretty sure that the copy you have in your hand is what Homer wrote. The, the next one after Homer's Iliad is like Herodotus, right? The ancient Greek historian who remembers reading Herodotus. We only have like 11 copies of Herodotus. And the oldest one is 1,200 years after Herodotus wrote. And then you get to Caesar's uh, Gallic Wars, and we have like eight copies of those. 25,000 manuscripts of the Bible to pour over, and men have like no other book ever. Good, godly, amazing, scholarly, faithful men have poured over these manuscripts to make sure that what you're holding in your hand is the Word of God. So, then, is the long ending of Mark part of the original autograph? Well, the external evidence argues against it, meaning we don't have the long ending in the oldest manuscripts. Two of the oldest and uh, complete manuscripts we have are called the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus. Very famous copies of the Bible when they went from scrolls to books, a codex is a book. These things are they're just wonderful, amazing resources that God's preserved. They date back to the 4th century. So a complete Bible from Genesis to Revelation in the 300s. Neither of those two contain the long ending of Mark or even a footnote or anything. Well, how did the long ending then get so popular? It's because it was in the King James Version. But the King James used the Textus Receptus, which is that version that Erasmus used to write that new Latin version in the 1500s. And there's groups today called the King James-only people who say that God inspired the English version of the Bible in the King James and we should only use the King James, and it's the only English version that's error-free. Look, God never promised an error-free English edition. We have one of those uh, King James-only churches down in Lancaster. It's a, it's a very conservative Baptist church. They do wonderful things, wonderful things with missions and the Great Commission. We would disagree, though, that the King James is the only version you should be reading. And in fact, the NASB and ESV are better better translations, more accurate than the King James. In some churches, I would have just gotten thrown out of the pulpit. They would have picked me up literally and carried me out. What about the internal evidence? Uh, The internal evidence also argues against the long ending being um, the original. The transition from verse 8 is really awkward. So the women leave the tomb, and they're astonished, and they're gripped with fear, and they said nothing to anyone. And then all of a sudden it says, now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, that doesn't continue the story. And then it says, he appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons. In chapter 16, he's, the whole, chapter 16 is all about Mary Magdalene going to the tomb. By the way, I apologize to Mary Magdalene. We have no proof that she was a prostitute. I think I said that three weeks ago. It is a tradition in the Western church that she was a woman of ill repute, perhaps the woman in John's gospel who was going to get stoned for adultery. But we don't even know that that was her. And in fact, that's the other passage they say, don't preach when you're a brand new preacher, because that one's probably not in the original No, I love that passage. It's a good passage, and nothing in that passage violates anything that we would know about Jesus. In fact, most authorities believe that story actually happened, and a scribe later introduced it into the Bible, but it was a well-known story in the church. Mary Magdalene, though, uh, why all of a sudden at the end of the gospel is Mark introducing her as if we've never heard of her before? So that doesn't make sense. The writing style is not Mark's. The vocabulary is not Mark's. There's, there's Greek words in here that Mark doesn't use in other places in his gospel, but he, he does use the same word, just a synonym. And the signs in verse 17 to 18 are completely foreign to the other gospel in Acts. 
So you, you can leave today knowing that you don't need to drink poison or handle venomous snakes in order to prove that you are a legitimate believer. Most, if not all, of the information we read in 9 through 20 is contained in other parts of the Bible. What it really looks like is somebody was bothered that Mark's gospel ended so abruptly and put a catalog of things to kind of wrap it up, taking each verse from one of the other three Gospels. Jesus says to preach the Gospel to all creation. We get that from Matthew's Gospel, right? The Great, the great Commission. And you can go through there and, and pick out in the other Gospels everything that's in verses 9 through 20, except the handling of snakes and the drinking of poison, though we know at the end of Acts, Paul gets bit by a snake and nothing happens to him. So then, what do you do with this long ending? First of all, you can trust your Bible. Your English translation is a trustworthy, accurate record of God's Word. You can rest assured that no doctrine of the church hinges on this long ending. You can rest assured that you don't need to handle snakes or drink poison in order to be a true Christian. You can rest assured that the long ending is not proof that the Bible is not inerrant. Somebody added it in there. We know it doesn't belong. I think that, that doesn't mean the Bible is... In, inerrancy doesn't mean that there's no errors in the English translation. Inerrancy means that the original autographs, the Holy Spirit inspired the writers to write an inerrant message. Fifthly, we can just be happy with Mark's gospel ending in verse 8. For wouldn't you be filled with astonishment and trembling with fear if you found out that Jesus took his own life and raised it back up again and the tomb was empty? It's astonishing. It's amazing. I hope your faith in God's word was strengthened today and not weakened. If you're confused on any of these points, please make an appointment with me. Don't go home saying I'm confused or Pastor Brent doesn't trust the Bible. I trust the Bible. You can trust the Bible. Amen. Amen.